may have certain attitudes that we've had all our lives, and someone comes along who can manipulate or influence us to be different or to change our whole approach or our life in many, many different respects. So we can be changed. And I want to go through some more <clears throat> scriptures in the Old Testament to see the difference in spirit and attitude and how, in some cases, they can be changed entirely from what they were, perhaps as children, because people change from the time they're little till they're middle age till they're old. Uh, sometimes more than we realize, we change. Now, some things uh, perhaps remain the same, but other things change. Let's pick it up in uh, Numbers 14. Uh, here, God was working with Israel and with Caleb. And as they began to come into the land, God began destroying the peoples before them, as in the beginning at Jericho, <clears throat> when uh, the walls fell down and so on. And people began to hear about that. So, let's see what effect it had down in uh, verse uh, 24. Well, verse 23, Surely you shall not see the land which I swore to your fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So, people had, had a good attitude toward God, and then when things didn't go the way they wanted them, their whole demeanor, their whole attitude, their whole approach to God Himself completely changed. And we have many examples of that uh, in the history of Moses and Israel, how people were up one minute and down the next, and uh, their society could be godly for a short time and then ungodly for long periods of time. Uh, they just went up and down. They're the, not just individuals, but the whole tribe would change. So he says in verse 24 then, But my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherewith he went, and his seed shall possess it. Remember how all the spies, except Caleb and Joshua, were influenced by what they saw. And when they came out, they had a very negative spirit, very negative approach and attitude. No, we're not, we can't go in there. They'll defeat us. It's impossible. Forget it. But Caleb, here he's speaking specifically, had a whole other spirit. Now, when people have used a term like that, sometimes I've been a little bit uh, fearful of it because people out in the world sometimes will say, well, you have a different spirit about you. And I'm having been programmed through my life to see and understand and know Satan and his demons and spirit. When people say, well, you have a spirit, I immediately say, ooh, <laughs> let's, let's not have that spirit because they are individuals, they're beings. And we'll see, they can influence minds greatly as well. But we do have the spirit in man and we need to recognize that it is the essence of our being, of our mind. 
when he breathed his breath into us, it gave us something special that is somewhat similar to him. Adam and Eve were very similar to God after he breathed the breath of life into them. And then something happened that their attitude, their being, their mind changed. It just changed because it had been enacted on by an outside force, by an outside power. So they weren't them anymore. They were completely different. Just that quickly, they changed. So their spirit changed. It's you are a living spirit. You're a breathing animal. Well, animal, a breathing human being. And your mind and your life are tied together. Your whole attitude and approach to life. And the reason I'm going into this is to let us see how easily we can be influenced, manipulated, changed for better or for worse. Now, Caleb and Joshua came out and had a different type spirit mentality uh, about what was going on than the others did. And God liked that because he says, hey, these guys believe that I can deliver you. Now, as human beings, the spirit of the other spies quailed within them. It, it, uh, they had the yellow streak down the back. Why? Because as a human being with an understanding of their power only, they knew they could not accomplish taking over the land. Only two of them had faith in God that he could cause it to happen. Now, they may have realized also that Israel, by and of themselves, could not get the victory over the inhabitants of the land. But two of them said, God will see us through. Now, mankind overall is like the other spies. Either God doesn't exist, or He's a phantom, or He pays no attention to us, or what could He do anyway? That's the way mankind is today. Even with the spirit in man that God gave, we do not, by nature, have a trust or a faith in God whom we cannot see, that He can deliver us from whatever we need delivered from. That faith is not easy to come by. But Joshua and Caleb had it. And God recognized there was a totally different spirit or attitude or mindset in him than in the others. And God liked that. So give us a clue about what God likes and the reaction of our spirit, our mind. So we're not, <coughs> we're not a spirit floating through or flying through space, but God has put in our minds that intelligence, that capacity that no other beings have as humans or animals in, in the flesh. <clears throat> so what does God do? He says He ponders the heart. He watches 
where our mind goes, where our emotions go, how we react. And that tells him a great deal about whether that is the kind of spirit and attitude he wants in his kingdom or not. So this is an important subject for us to grasp about ourselves and why and how we can be changed for better or for worse. Because there are pressures that cause that to happen. Now in Joshua 5, here's a case just the opposite of what it was with Caleb. Joshua 5, and here in uh, verse 1, It came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Eternal had dried up the waters of Jordan, and they passed over, their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. So here, what God did with Israel caused the spirit of their enemies to just drop to the floor. They didn't have any strength, no power, no purpose of mind, whereby they thought they could uh, conquer Israel. It just, it just drained out of them. How, what happens to an athlete when they have a great and high confidence level? I can do this. I can make this happen. I can win. And that indomitable, indomitable spirit, that attitude, can make them a champion. But what about the one that says, oh, man, I can't do this. I, you know, they're, they're bigger than us. They're smarter than us. They're faster than us. They're stronger than us. They just give up before the game ever starts. And there may not be but that much difference, truly, in the uh, actual physical and mental capacities of either team. But attitude is everything. Because the one who comes in and dominates by force of will is usually who wins, let's say, a football game. Because when some people get beat up on a little bit, they give up. Others you beat up on them a little bit and they just get stirred up more and come back even harder at you. It's all in the mind and the will and the purpose of that mind. And that's what happened to these people. Would you rather have gone up against these Canaanite armies with them sitting there saying, we're going to whip you, or go in against them when they're saying, oh... I'm afraid you're going to beat us up. That's the kind I'd rather fight, personally. (laughs) You know? What about us and Satan? What kind would he rather fight? Where would he find advantage? Wherever he can. He seeks whom he may devour. So he's looking for those little weaknesses, or big weaknesses, or whatever in your armor, wherever he can find that he can attack, knowing he has a good chance to win. 
And that's what all opponents do, whether it's a boxing match. You know, you're, you're watching him on film before you ever fight him to see how he handles his left and his right, how he moves his feet, uh, and so on, because you want to find any weakness you can so you can capitalize on it. And the same was happening here with these people that they were going up against. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel 9. First Samuel nine. Now here's the story of uh, of Saul. They were looking for a king, and God had said, "All right, I'll give you a king." And anyway, this man of Benjamin had a son in verse two, whose name was Saul, a choice young man. Now choice means here's one you would choose if you're choosing upsides for a team or for whatever. Uh, here's one who was choice, one that you would make a choice. Not only is he choice, he was goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and up, he was higher than any of the people, so he was, he was physically choice. But I think when it says goodly here, it's not just referring to his physical stature, but his attitude, his approach, and we'll see that here in a moment, was such that you would want him to be doing whatever he was doing, whether it was governing or fighting or whatever. Here was a goodly and choice and strong young man. Now, that's the way Saul started out. Now, let's go to uh, chapter 15. Verse 17. Speaking to Saul, Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Eternal anointed you the king over Israel? So that indicates that he had a humble and meek approach in his life as a young man. So the goodly had to do with his attitude as a young man. He wasn't a vain, proud type of person, even though he was taller by head and shoulders over everybody else. Uh, most people, if they have that advantage, become very proud and proud of themselves. So, he had changed. His whole spirit and attitude in life had begun to change. And God had told them not to, to get the animals. And you remember the story about how, uh, hey, I, I think I hear the lowing of cattle. Did you take some spoil? <laughs> God told you not to, right? But verse 21, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen and so on. But what Samuel said here is where I'm headed in verse 22. Has the eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal? Well, Saul was thinking, hey, I'll, I'll take these animals anyway and I'll sacrifice them to God. Samuel says, is that what God wants? Is he interested in you killing animals? Or is it better to obey him? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken, to listen to God, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Eternal, he has also rejected you from being king. 
Well, what had happened to Saul? He was a humble young man, goodly and choice, and then he began to let it go to his head, and he put himself above God's Word, and in that sense, above God, because that's what that is. He had rebelled against God in the way that he approached things. And God told him, or Samuel told him from God, you're going to be rejected as king. Well, what happened thereafter, I won't go to all the scriptures, it would take a while, but we all know the story, how he became a very bitter, angry person. And David was called in to play music for him to try to settle him down a little bit because he was bonkers. And evil spirits had begun to enact upon his human spirit, and it changed him so badly that nobody could live with him anymore. So, David, play for me, settle me down, and sometimes that worked, and sometimes he threw his spear at David. <laughs> you know, his, that, that's a pretty good change from what he had been, right? So, his whole demeanor, his whole spirit, his whole attitude, his whole approach to life had changed completely. He had become a bitter, selfish, enraged, dangerous man from what he had been. Early is no danger to anyone but a help to them. So the spirit in man, the mind of man, can be enacted upon, is, is the point here. And it can be for better or for worse. And so often it is for worse. So we need to be aware. Let's go to uh, Ezra 1. Now here was a Gentile king, Cyrus. Uh, he did not know God. Uh, he, he knew of God, I, I believe, have, having been the son of, uh, of Esther and Ahasuerus. But still he was a Gentile king. And it says, The word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled. The Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom. Now, God wanted these people who had come out of uh, the captivity to go and build his temple, and then ultimately to be rebuild Jerusalem. So, here was Cyrus, who had been prepared ahead of time, uh, through Esther, actually. But God enacted or caused... Cyrus to do something. So we see the interaction here then not of Satan but of God with his Gentile king to cause him to say, who wants to go build the temple? Jeremiah's told me you ought to do it. I, Daniel, he told me that Daniel said it needed to be done. So he picked up on that and said, okay, who wants to go? And I'll give you the money and I'll give you the temple treasures. I'll give you everything you need to go do this job. Now, was that Cyrus's normal approach? Probably not. Now, he may have been a nice person, but here God absolutely enacted upon his mind, causing him to do something. Now, the spirit in man gives us intelligence so that God 
can interact with that human mind in a way that he doesn't with animals. And here, he was able to put thoughts there and cause that man to react the way he wanted him to react. Why do we pray and ask God to give us understanding and wisdom and guidance to direct and guide our steps so that we go the right way? Because we expect something to happen or don't expect something to happen. Now, if you go to the God of all the universe and you pray that way, you should be able to expect that He will react with your spirit, your mind, and cause your attitude toward so-and-so to be different, toward your enemies, toward whoever, and cause you to do what you ought to do instead of what you might have done. So He can help us change our mind just like He did Cyrus. Can He not? Do you believe that? If you don't believe it, why don't you go ask Him? Do we go ask and then walk away as if nothing happened? Or do we have an expectancy there? Now, why would you have that expectancy? A, because you know He has the power. He built the universe around us. So we know He has the power. Now, if your expectancy is high, it's going to be because you have ascertained and discerned the will of God. Because you know that he said, if you pray according to my will, I will give it to you. So many times we pray wanting something, and it doesn't happen, and we think God's ignoring me. No, maybe he's not. Maybe you just didn't pray according to his will. (laughs) And you didn't check the scriptures enough to know what he thinks about this or what he thinks about that. So you're praying this way, and his word says, no, I think this way. And you don't always, in your spirit and mind, necessarily ascertain what his will is. That's why this book is here, is to give us understanding and knowledge of what he would desire, and then we can pray according to that, then we can have that expectancy. Uh, You know sometimes, don't you, when you pray that you're asking for something that it's what you want, but you're not quite so sure it's what God would want. But we try to kid ourselves that our will is his will, and it isn't always that way. What is his will? That needs to be discovered in order to get the answer that he would have us have. Let's go to Job 7. Here in verse uh, 11, well, we know the trials and troubles and everything that Job was going through, and he must have been trouble having trouble with his mind and spirit. Uh, he, he didn't know quite what was happening or what God was doing, and his, his advisors didn't have any better idea than he did, in fact, less. Uh, so there was, there was something about Job that God wanted changed. Job had, overall, a good spirit as a human being. 
God even told Satan, I, I don't find anything wrong with him. You know, that, that's an exceptional human being there. But there was something about Job that God could see that Satan could not. God can see self-righteousness. Satan is so self-righteous, he can't always see it <laughs> because it's so much like him. But God could see that Job had, in spite of his good approach overall, was self-righteous. And he put him through an awful lot to get him to see, oh, you are righteous and I'm dust. That's what he concluded at the end of the book of Job. But here in chapter 7, just to pick out a, a, a point, uh, he says, Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So while he was in the doldrums going through this, his spirit, his mind, his attitude was downcast. He felt discouraged. He felt frustrated. He was trying to figure out what's going on here. And it was not an easy task. Because Job could look at his life and say, well, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, this, and this, and this. And everything just turned upside down. This is horrible. And he was trying to sort out in his relationship with God what's happening. Utterly on the floor. Totally discouraged. How would you feel? If you'd lost all your kids, killed, lost all your animals, your income, your livelihood, gone. Nobody liked you anymore. And your wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Thanks, sweetie. I appreciate that. that that's encouraging. <laughs> you know? Everything had gone bad. So he was in anguish of spirit. Some people would give up at that point. But Job didn't. He kept trying to sort through it, sort through it, and know that somewhere in here, God is trying to teach me something, trying to show me. He hasn't forgotten me. Isn't that what we read the other day? Or Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. So when we're down in trials, troubles, and so on, and our spirit wanes, and we feel like, why go on? What's the point? I'm not going to make it anyway. I'm depressed. Poor pitiful me. And we turn insular inside ourselves. And our outgoing loving spirit has changed. It's all about me. Poor pitiful me. Instead of saying, what should I be learning here? What is God trying to do? A, I know He loves me. I know He cares about me. And yet all I do is have trouble. Well, the first and partial answer to that is to go to the Scriptures that say what? In this life you will have trials, troubles, tribulations, all kinds of problems. Oh, okay. God said that would happen. All right, now it's happening. So, therefore, when God said it would happen, He must have had a reason for it. Why? What is His reason for it? So that we might change our spirit, our attitude, our mind, 
and be more like Him. So He gives us trials and troubles to show us that, hey, I think I had better turn to God and I better do something different than what I'm doing in order for things to improve. And when Job saw what had been wrong with him, where his lack was, after all he'd been through, suddenly God blessed him just like that. More and beautiful daughters than he had had, more animals, more everything. His wife probably straightened up somewhat. <laughs> you know, oh, now Job, I'm back on your bandwagon. You know, everything's going fine. Please, girls, don't give up on us. Uh, maybe God's not quite done with us yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, that was the way it was with Job. Let's go to Psalms a little bit, because David was a man of great passions. He was a man of great emotion. Uh, David probably felt things uh, in a deeper way than most humans have. He, well, you just read through and see the ups and downs that the man went through, and it's an incredible story. And his reactions are so very important in the spirit of David, the spirit and mind and attitude of David. Chapter 31, verse 5. Uh, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O, o eternal God of truth. So he was having trouble. He turned to God and he says, I just commit my whole mind, my attitude, my spirit to you. Why? Because things that happened and were happening that caused his whole spirit and attitude to be down. And he realized, I can't accomplish things. I can't be what I want to be on my own. So he goes to God and says, I'm yours. <laughs> you take care of me. You do for me what needs done for me. Because I can't solve it myself. So he went to God for solution. Uh, chapter 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Eternal imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When we are guileless, when we are simple, when we are direct, when we are not trying to achieve our agenda, let's say, uh, with others, uh, we're not being manipulative of others, and uh, nice to their face and stabbing them into the back and all the things that the subtlety and manipulation can do, the, the guile. Guile is uh, kind of like bile. <laughs> it's a bitter, wrong, backward, bad-tasting thing. And uh, when we have an agenda against somebody, instead of being simple and loving and direct and kind then God has a problem with us. But if we are guileless, if we are sincere and open and unhypocritical, that's the kind of person that God will not impute sin to. I want to be one of those, you know? I'd like to be one that God says, oh yeah, he did that or he thought that, but 
On the other hand, his whole demeanor, his whole spirit, his whole mind is toward me and toward doing what I want. Therefore, I won't even impute that to him. Wouldn't it be nice if we were all in that category where God would say, hey, it's okay. That person does so much good that I'm going to overlook this. That's what grace is. He overlooks and is willing to say, hey, I'm not going to put that on their account because they're doing what I want them to do overall. You know, if, if you've got a kid who's obedient and yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and, and uh, is ready to comply with the parents' wishes and isn't always fighting and kicking and bickering and arguing and screaming against what you want them to do, overall you say, man, that's a wonderful child. So once in a while, if they make a mistake or have a little attitude, you say, that's all right, I love you anyway. And you don't do that very often. You're a goodly child, a choice one. And therefore, your attitude is such that you're more willing to forgive them. But if they're constantly pitching fits and throwing things in the supermarket aisle and screaming their head off to get what they want, they're being manipulative. And they get their way with that kind of approach. That gets tiresome. And, you, and you, you, you know, they're not a joy to be around when they're like that. Of course, you trained them to be that way is the reason they're that way, because you have enacted upon their spirit, and they've learned that they can get what they want by acting up, because you want them to shut up. So you give them what they want, and then they shut up. But the problem is, then they want something else, and they do the same thing. And until you give them what they want, they don't shut up. So you've got to retrain them. Isn't that what God's doing with us? Retraining us. He chastens every son whom He loves. He punishes us for when we do act up. We don't get what we want. We get something we didn't want. <laughs> you know? Like a paddling on the behind. We don't want that. But he said, that's what I do to you when you act up. He says, I'm not going to train you to rebel against me. When you rebel against me, you're going to feel pain. Oh. And then you begin to say, I'm tired of pain. Maybe I should do what God says. Isn't that what he did with Israel over and over? He put them in pain, in captivity, whatever, to get them to straighten up. To change their whole spirit and attitude. And that's what's required with children. It's what's required with us as adults. So when you see trials, trouble, and tribulation, then you should say, what should I be learning here? What is there about my mind, my attitude, my approach that God would want different? And that's all it was with Job, wasn't it? Just an attitude of mind. The, the spirit and attitude of how great he was and diminishing how great God was. That's all it was, was something that needed to be changed in his approach. And look what he went through and what it took to change that. Self-righteousness is probably the hardest thing for any human being to recognize, to see, and to fix. Because self-righteousness means that my spirit and mind thinks that I'm okay. And it's hard to convince me I'm not okay if I have that attitude. So, 
Look what he went through to convince him his attitude needed to be different. Now I ask you, did God care about Job? He cared a lot about Job. So much so that he sicked the devil on him personally and said, I'm going to use you to straighten him out. And boy, did the devil do it. And uh, God loved Job so much that he was willing to go through all of this in order to get Job where he wanted him to be. What do we have to go through to get where God wants us to be? Our whole spirit and attitude. Because that's what it's all about. Chapter 34, uh, is that 18 I wrote down? Yeah, verse 18. The eternal is near to them that are of a broken spirit, or a broken heart, and save such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, which I was just actually quoting, but the eternal delivers him out of them all. So who does he look to? Someone who is not proud, a broken spirit in that sense. Uh, when you, they say, break a horse, you have one that's maybe very high-spirited. That's his, that's his approach to life. Is he's energetic and high-spirited, and he does not want to be ridden. So somehow you've got to get him to change his whole spirit and attitude to the point that he doesn't mind you getting on his back, heavy as you are to him, saddle and all, and him hauling you where you want to be hauled. There's got to be a whole change in his mind. We speak sometimes of horses as being mean-spirited. You can look in their eye. And some have a soft, good eye, and another one you see blood in their eye, <laughs> you know. You've seen, you've seen dogs like that. You can see one and he's, he's, he has a pleasant disposition. He's, he's happy, he's eager, his tail's wagging. He's, he's a happy dog. He's a, he's a, his spirit is good. And then you see one that you just as soon not get near. Because the whole attitude of that dog shows on his faith and his fangs and his eyes. God's looking for good-spirited people who are willing and able and desire to serve. And that's what your goal is with that high-spirited horse, is to get into the place that he submits. And he's not proud and ready to buck you off because he don't like you, <laughs> you know. He just doesn't like you. Doesn't like you on him. And humans are that way. But God looks to those who have a contrite, broken spirit. The, the spirit of pride, the spirit of self, goes away. And the spirit of God, of giving and loving and serving, replaces it. And that's not an easy transition. It doesn't come easily. Uh, let's go to chapter 51. Uh, here's the prayer of David for of repentance after the Uriah Bathsheba thing. And David had worked himself into a very selfish spirit. He saw Bathsheba. He wanted her. He took her. 
Then he realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. So he brought her husband home and so that if she got pregnant, and maybe she was by then, maybe I don't know how much time had gone by, but it was early enough that if Uriah came home, the child could be blamed on him instead of David. But Uriah threw him a curve and slept on the porch. See, Uriah had an incredible spirit, mind, and attitude about him. And his attitude was, you know, if all those other soldiers are out there and they're in danger of dying every day and they give me a furlough and send me home to visit my wife, that's not fair. Because in his mind, there was, I doubt, any logical reason why out of all those troops, they would pick him out and say, go sleep with your wife. Huh? (laughs) Why me? Why would you do that for me and not everybody else? So he, he obviously discerned something's haywire here, something's fishy, something's going on. So he slept on the porch. Now that must have frustrated King David standing up on his balcony watching Uriah sleep on the porch. So he said, uh-oh, we're going to have to fix this. So he told his officers, send him back to battle. But this time, put him right at the wall. You know, going over the wall to defeat a city. Knowing he would be killed. So it was out out and out murder. So David had become, at that point in his life, very, very selfish. uh, Self-contained. It's all about me and what I want. And I'll do anything to get it, including murder. Uh, Maybe he was a Hillary Clinton by then. Now, there's a spirit and attitude you want to have, okay? But there are people who want to see this nation destroyed so they can get what they want. That's not the right spirit and attitude. I don't mean to single her out. There's lots and lots of them we could use. But that's one of those that has a murder list so long, apparently. Anyway, that's the attitude he had gotten himself into. And then when... Uh, he was told, you're the man that took that, that other man's only sheep, used an analogy, and he said, oh, oh, what have I done? His whole countenance changed, his whole attitude changed. Now, Nathan, when he brought that to him, was scared to death because David, in the attitude he had been in and already killed Uriah, could have lopped his head off very quickly. The kings could do that, you know, <clears throat> and get away with it. So Nathan was somewhat in trepidation when he went to David. But David's whole spirit and attitude changed because David understood God and he understood God's laws. And then it it hit him like a ton of bricks. What have I deceived myself into doing by my selfishness, my lust, my covetousness? I took another man's wife and I've killed him. Hit him pretty hard. So what did he say? Chapter 51 and uh, verse 17, I want. Well, oh no, let's see. Verse 10 first. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
he knew his whole attitude had turned selfish. And he wanted God to help him recreate the attitude he had as a shepherd out there minding the sheep when he looked to God and the stars at night and wrote songs to God and was close to God. And he realized he had departed so far from God by his life and actions that he wanted God to help create a clean spirit within him. It had become dirty. Wrong. Bad spirit. And then he says on down in verse 17, "...the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." Now, we read almost the same words back in the beginning of Psalms where he said that God looks to a man of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Well, he realized that he had lost his. His whole mind, his whole being had gone selfish. So he says, God, help me get over this. You created me a clean spirit because mine's gone bad. You know, human, human beings can go bad. You've probably seen it. You've probably seen yourself go bad here and there. <laughs> uh, we can. We can change our whole life, our whole approach to life. Some people, when they're young, have a, a good spirit and attitude and are nice to people. And then things happen in their lives. They get with a bad influence. They get in a circumstance where their human nature takes over. And they can become mean, bitter, old people. Their whole attitude toward life completely changes. Now, the inverse can also be true. You can have someone who is mean and bitter from their youth, rebellious, and things can happen, and they become kind, gentle, loving people later in life, after they've been through some rough times. You know, we talk about people, well, maybe some hard knocks will teach them something. Don't we use that expression? <laughs> well, sometimes it does. Sometimes it just makes them more bitter. Sometimes it changes them for the good. It's all about our spirit and attitude. God put it in there for a reason. He gave us intelligence so that we could think about what's good and what's bad. And then he gave us a book that tells us what's good and what's bad so that we can try to enhance our spirit and approach to be like this instead of like it is by nature. That's why you have the spirit in man, which is a, a beginning of the spirit of God. It isn't anywhere near what the Spirit of God is, but it's akin to it, having been breathed into you, so that it can be influenced to be like God, to, be, to have the same spirit and attitude of God. Isn't that really what David was asking? My spirit has gone sour. My approach to life has gone sour. I'm doing things to people that I should not be doing to them. And then he said, I want to be like you. A clean spirit, a contrite, a humble mind. Help me fix this, was his whole approach. 
And God did. From Psalm 51 on, David was different. Now, he didn't always get what he wanted from God either, did he? Bathsheba was pregnant, and she did have a son. And David didn't want to lose that child, but he was fearful that he might because of what he had done. Now, his mind had changed by then. He'd repented, but God said, there's still a penalty. So he laid down and fasted until he heard the servants murmuring and realized the kid's dead. Then he got up, went on about his business. Now, they expected him to go into a rage and be upset and frustrated and lash out at everybody and take it out on everybody and be in mourning and frustration for a period of time. But he wasn't. He was just the opposite of what everybody thought he would be. They thought he would be what he had been when he was committing adultery and killing. So they expected the same kind of David, but no, David had repented. He had changed his whole mind and spirit and attitude. And then when the baby died, David said, oh, that's God's answer. So he got up and went on about his business. Now that tells me that his mind toward God had changed a great deal from what it had been, in that he was able to get up and go on. You or I, if we lose a child, uh, whether it's miscarriage or whether the child dies after born or being born, that's not easy to get over, is it? And in fact, as a human being, you may never get over it entirely because it is such an emotional thing. But David had repaired his spirit and mind to be more like God so that he took it in stride when the God's decision there, he says, you're the boss. You decided the child dies. Okay, I'm good with that. I'm going to go on. Now, he learned by his sin, by his trial, and by his punishment. So, he was not at all what people thought he would be, but he was more like God wanted him to be, accepting whatever God says is, that's okay with me. So I'll get up and go on and not mourn. So his whole approach to life changed right there over that whole episode. I don't have time for all of these that I wrote down. Uh, let's go to Proverbs 14. I'll skip over some. There's, there were a whole bunch more than I wrote down anyway. Uh, just, But I wanted us to see how our minds can be influenced and affected by circumstances and by outside pressures. And we have to make some choices. Chapter 14, verse uh, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalts folly. So some people's spirit and mind and attitude is hasty. They make decisions too quickly sometimes and erroneously as a result of it. But if we're slow to wrath, we don't get angry easily, then there's some understanding there. You know how it is if you're threatened or somebody does something you don't like, how easy it is to get offended 
how easily it is to get angry and frustrated at them because of what they did or said. Boy, we can get angry. He says, no, a man of understanding will think that through and realize somebody might have been been being selfish. Maybe they don't really mean any harm to me at all. They were just being selfish and I got the brunt of it. Or we think it through and say, well, that person did that, but overall, they're pretty decent people. They got a lot of good qualities, so I'll overlook this. Isn't that what God said? If you do what's good, I won't impute sin to you, and you'll receive my grace and mercy. So we have to think it through and say, I shouldn't be offended. They're just being human. They're just being natural, carnal human beings. I hope they change. I think I'll go pray for them, that they have a better attitude and don't treat me this way anymore. So we don't get angry, because what good does that do? They throw a rock at you, and you throw a rock back, and they get a bigger one and hit you in the head with it. Uh, How much have you accomplished? (laughs) Got a headache. Chapter 15, verse 13. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Let's go back to Caleb and Joshua just a moment. Caleb and Joshua were happy when they came out of the promised land. Man, they've got big grapes there, and uh, everything's good. The crops are good. they got water. Uh, the cities are built, and there's houses there we can live in already. This is going to be great. They, they had a merry heart, because I believe God is going to give us this, and look at all the great things we saw. And the other ten said, oh my, there's some nice things there, but this just ain't going to work. Which would you rather be? You know, I'd rather be happy and merry and joyful. I'd much rather somebody saying something that's humorous and fun and we can all laugh and enjoy it. And it's uplifting. A merry heart helps the countenance. But sorrow causes the spirit to be broken. Too much trouble, and it gets to the point you're about to break as a human being. Have you seen, have you seen people like that, that they're just listless? They see no reason to do anything, to go on, because life is so hard. Life is so difficult. I have this mental ailment, I have that emotional ailment, I have this physical ailment, and their spirit just sinks and you look at them and say, kind of doubt they'll ever do anything because they have just given up. They're not working at it anymore. The spirit is broken. Now, you see others who have adversity and they say, I am going to come through this. I'm going to make everything work. I'm going to make my life operable, make it useful, make it worthwhile. And they work, no matter what their problem is, to solve it and to get on top of it and make things work. People who are paraplegic, can't move their arms or their legs, have been known to hold a pencil in their mouth 
and work a computer and make a living with a pen in their mouth. It's all they have. <coughs> Set the computer here on my chest where I can reach it. And I'll make a living. Now there is a strong spirit. A strong character. Someone who's willing to do anything to overcome a situation. <coughs> and to have a productive life. And then others just sit there and moan until they die. If you're going to live, why not live? Why just sit around and wait to die? <coughs> Is that fun? Not much. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. We could go on and on with many of these things about the human spirit and, and the things that, that act upon it. Oh, I, I've got a whole bunch more here and we're getting close to the, to the end of this, but maybe that's enough scriptures. There's, if, if you want to look at them some more, all you have to do is get on your computer and type in, if you have PC Study Bible or some other of these Bible things, if you don't have those, you need them. You need something instead of getting out that old Strong's Concordance and going through like we used to, and it took you days to study a, to do a word study on something. <coughs> now you just type it in, and all the places it appears come in one place, and and not only that, you can bring it up and read it right beside it, and and get comments comments from Bible dictionaries and everything. Uh, if you computer literate at all, and could get one of those. There's several different programs out that can cause that you can use to make study so easy. It's just like this. I just in a few minutes I went went down through the things about spirit and uh, got a list longer than I have time to go through, and there were still hundreds that I didn't use. Uh, so Bible study can made be made a lot easier than what we used to do through the use of technology in a proper way. So maybe we'll we'll stop this particular branch of this at this moment. If we get out of it, the point I'm trying to overall make is God gave us an intelligence beyond that of animals and trees and and things. And it is enough akin to his spirit that He gives us the capacity to, to some degree, create, to plan, to form, like the furniture cabinet there. Somebody had the ability to, in their mind, think it through and design it in just such a way as the way they wanted it, and then find the materials and build it and finish it and make a, a beautiful product. So we have a limited creative capacity. We can't make something out of nothing, as God can. But we can take something He made and use our limited creativity, or artistic point of view, or whatever, and skills through our hands and mind to create something of use and beauty in whatever field it might be. So he's given us that closeness and kinship to his spirit that we can do these things. 
Now, the spirit in man sometimes goes the wrong direction, and we create something beautiful and then use it for terrible reasons and purposes. Uh, or we can go the other way and use it for high-minded good purposes. I mean, you can make a, be- a cabinet to hold dishes in it out of wood, or you can make a, an arrow to shoot somebody with out of wood. How does your mind work? <laughs> you know? So, we have what we have. God has given us a great blessing to be able to think, to plan, to use logic, to analyze, to come up with answers. Now, we have to understand what He's done and then grasp what it is that we can do with it. How can we make it good? Because Adam and Eve were created that way, where everything that they would do was good. They were goodly, of a good mind and spirit. And then something happened, and suddenly they weren't. Now that tells me that each human being, each one of us here, has a responsibility to take what God has given us and do something with it that is good. So that it might be a goodly spirit, a choice spirit, that's something he says, I like that one. That's a good mind. That's a good approach to life. I want that one to live forever with me because, wow, the things we can do together because of the attitude and approach of that person. Now, David did not always have uh, that mind that is like God. But he saw within David, in sick and sin and in obedience or whatever, as his life went up and down, he saw a man after his own heart. What is God's heart? God's heart is to be a success. God's heart is to have a merry countenance. It is to do good for others. It is to make the space he lives in, the universe, a better place to be. And someone came and enacted on that and messed it up, and it wasn't good. And now he wants it to get back the way it was. So when he saw David sin terribly, he didn't quit on David. He said, I'll work with him. I'll create a new spirit within him. I'll restore him to what he was when he was 15 and more. And he has within him the kind of mind and attitude and spirit that he will respond to me. And he's the kind that I can work with forever and evermore as king of all Israel in spite of what he had just done to Israel. God can fix it. Now, what has life done to you? And can it be fixed?